your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. And welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, December 16th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Our topic is the relationship of the gastrointestinal tract to autism as a whole body condition. Dr. Andrew Wakefield is an academic gastroenterologist who has published over 130 original scientific articles, book chapters, and invited scientific commentaries. Dr. Wakefield serves as the executive director of Thoughtful House Center for Children in Austin, Texas. Thoughtful House aims to provide a research-oriented, integrated biomedical and educational approach. Dr. Wakefield, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Terry. Good morning. Dr. Wakefield, Roughly, what percentage of our immune system is in the gut? I think it's estimated that probably about 70% of our total immune system is in the gut. Um, it occurs in regions starting up in the tonsils, the adenoids, in the payers patches, the lymph glands of the small bowel, and uh, a diffuse collection of immune cells throughout the whole of the intestinal lining. Quite a bit. Um, and it's commonly expressed that the immune system keeps you healthy and the nervous system helps you think. But what is the relationship of the immune system on neurodevelopment and of the nervous system on immunomodulation? Well, I think it's important to bear in mind that these two evolve together and they are uh, systems which operate in both directions. So the immune system can have profound effects upon the brain and likewise, the brain uh, can have profound effects upon the function of the immune system, and they, to a large extent, regulate each other. The immune system has been described as the sixth sense, if you like. Um, the, taking the effect of the immune system on the brain first, um, the timing of an immune impact upon um, brain function is absolutely crucial. Uh, just to give you an example, the um, immune insults, uh, infectious insults, which activate the immune system, can have a huge effect upon the developing brain in particular. So if a mother suffers from an infection or an inflammatory reaction, then the products of that inflammatory reaction, the cytokines, the chemical messengers that come from the immune cells, can have uh, a lasting effect upon the developing brain. And it would seem that the earlier that impact takes place, the more significant the long-lasting effect. And so maternal infections have been linked to autism and they've been linked to schizophrenia, for example. So clearly what happens to the immune system particularly early on in development, can have profound effects upon the brain. And is that when the, the child is a fetus? That's right. And when the, the child is a fetus, the earlier it seems the, the more susceptible the developing brain is to 
an aberrant uh, immune response that may be occurring outside the brain. And um, some very good work has been done on this by, for example, Paul Patterson, showing that um, exposure of rodents to influenza virus when they are pregnant can lead to behavioral effects in the offspring. And it's been long thought uh, by many that infectious agents such as influenza may be playing a role in diseases like schizophrenia, where the exposure is in utero, but the disease may not manifest in the offspring clearly until they're uh, some, somewhat older. These effects that you describe uh, prenatally, can they also occur uh, from postnatal triggers? Yes, they can. And when they occur from postnatal triggers, it would be reasonable to expect that the outcome may be different, may be markedly different, because one may be dealing with a brain that is fully formed or at a much more advanced stage of formation. So insults from the immune system that tend to affect people later in life um, affect brain systems that are already established. So they may disrupt established systems rather than those that occur in fetal life, which disrupt developing systems, systems that are in the process of being created. And so the behavioral outcome, understandably, may be somewhat different. Would this manifest differently insofar as autism that becomes apparent later rather than earlier? Uh, so many families describe a regressive autism. Absolutely. I think that one example of this from clinical experience, my own clinical experience, is the demonstration of affection. Now, historically, in canna autism, where the child is never right or has exhibited problems from very early on, it is said that the child, children do not exhibit affection, even to those closest to them, their parents. However, when we started seeing children back in London in 1995 with regressive autism after a period of normal development, the child psychiatrist in many cases said this child can't be autistic because he's affectionate. He's far too affectionate and children with autism don't demonstrate affection. But is it possible that that is a function of the fact that this child developed normally for 15, 18 months, that he established an affectionate relationship with his parents and siblings and then became autistic after some postnatal insult, he still retained the affection, but it may be somewhat disjointed. It may be that he, it was difficult to express it in quite the, the same way that um, other children express affection, but nonetheless it was quite clearly evident. And this is something that was described in, in some of those patients reported as having Heller syndrome or disintegrative disorder, this late onset autistic spectrum disorder where they are described as having affection. So I suspect that what we're looking at is a different clinical presentation which is determined by the age of onset or the age at which the insult that caused that disorder was experienced. Yes, that's that's what I was getting from what you were saying. So could what we call uh, classic uh, Canner's autism be from a prenatal insult and regressive autism be from a postnatal insult? 
Yes, I think that's a, that's a very reasonable approach. So it's well known that diseases such as intrauterine exposure to rubella or thalidomide or the anti-seizure medication can produce autism in the infant. And one would expect that um, following those in utero exposures, the disorder would manifest from very early on, whereas um, a child who might regress following an infectious exposure later in life, say two years, may present somewhat differently. I didn't mean to get uh, so uh, political so early in the interview, but uh, this kind of uh, would give me a way to address the uh, what my son's pediatrician had said uh, when I asked him about the MMR shot and a coincidence of timing. It was just a, a coincidence of timing and such. Uh, children uh, manifesting symptoms of autism and uh, having had the MMR shot. So, well, you've, <laughs> you've lifted the lid on Pandora's box, so we need to address it, and it's not something, it's not a question that we can back away from. I think that, firstly, the issue of coincidence in medicine is a conclusion at which you arrive after excluding all other possibilities. In other words, it's not one that you sit there and off the bat you just say, well, that's coincidence. Wow. It may be coincidence, but that is not a conclusion that you can arrive at without having done due diligence, without having investigated the story and the patient to the best of your ability to establish whether it's coincidence or not. And I'm afraid it's unacceptable to assume from the outset that it is coincidence without the appropriate investigation. So how do we deal with this issue of coincidence? Um, again, the history is absolutely key, as are the clinical findings. I had a, a patient came to Thoughtful House the other day, and it was very interesting because you, you, you yourself may have experienced this, where the doctor said, well, you're just looking for someone or something to blame. Well, a child came to us who had regressed at six months of age, and his father said, quite clearly, this has nothing to do with his MMR vaccination, which he had at 12 months. His mother then produced his vaccination documents, and at six months, he had had a single measles vaccine. The mm. father didn't know that. Therefore, the father was not looking for something to blame. In fact, he had exonerated the vaccine. Wow. But here we had a situation where the child had received a vaccine at six months of age and had exhibited regression from that point, quite clearly documented. And... Um, he then received a second shot, an MMR on this occasion at 12 months, and was profoundly autistic and had very, very severe gastrointestinal disease. The other thing is that you can go by the IOMs, the Institute of Medicine's approach to this, and say, well, what happens to those children who've had not one shot but two? One and regression, one shot. Then you may say, well, that's coincidence. But if a child is given a second shot, say, three or four years later, and they exhibit further regression or further deterioration in their symptoms or an exacerbation of their pre-existing symptoms, well, that is not coincidence. That is called re-challenge and is considered by the IOM to demonstrate causation until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at this in the context of the bowel disease. People could criticize our interpretation of the parent's story by saying, well, they're just, just biased. You know, they're making it up. 
that's very, very unlikely in my experience. But nonetheless, what we did was to look at the bowel disease and say, well, is the bowel disease worse in those children who've had two shots than those who've had one at the same chronological age? And the answer was yes. It was significantly more severe. And that suggests that there is this dose-response effect that means the bowel disease is more severe in those who've had more doses. And that is not consistent with the idea that this is coincidence. Right. I remember um, that you did a, a re-challenge study, and also uh, there were uh, slides from a presentation in a previous year where a child had regressed, and then through uh, therapy on the part of the parents, he had uh, improved and then was given another MMR shot and then regressed again, I think, worse than the first time. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, um, I also remember from that presentation, I, I often quote your saying, when in doubt, examine the patient. Yes, so. absolutely. It's one of the first rules that one learns as a clinician. I really uh, like your saying that you can't assume coincidence without investigation, and coincidence should only be assumed after excluding all other possibilities. Well, um, let's let's get back to... Uh, the mechanics of the gut. How is gut flora established in the newborn? It depends on how you're born, in summary. What happens is that you acquire, if you are born by a normal vaginal delivery, then you acquire your gut flora from your mother, the fecal flora from your mother, so that you establish effectively what your mother has, and hopefully that is a healthy gut flora. And that is the historical pattern of, um, of the acquisition of gut flora. Alternatively, if you are born by cesarean section in what is effectively a very sterile environment and then put into um, the hospital environment, you tend to acquire hospital bacteria as your gut flora. All right, and we'll continue talking about this when we come back from break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. 
Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within. Your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield, and for the break, we were talking about how gut flora was established in the newborn, and Dr. Wakefield, would you like to pick up with that, and then let us know the various ways that gut flora can become compromised in the child, and what dysbiosis is. Right. Well, I, we were saying, I think, that um, there are various ways in which you acquire your gut flora, depending on how you're born, um, either from your mother's gut flora, if you're born vaginally, or if you are born by cesarean section, then hospital bacteria tend to colonize your gut first. And um, those are broad generalizations, but they, they, they tend to hold. And if early acquisition of gut flora is important in later disease of the intestine, then you might expect that acquisition of, gut, uh, of uh, hospital flora, which is, doesn't tend to be very healthy, might lead to later problems. And we, we did some work on this some years ago, which showed that uh, children born by cesarean section were at higher risk of, of later inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's and colitis. So an interesting observation, and um, one that suggests that the risk for these diseases might be acquired very early on, a risk that has been, a finding that has been supported by others that suggest something happening very early in life is determining your risk of a disease which may not develop perhaps until you're 30 or 40. Which studies have established that children with autism have gut flora that's different from neurotypical children? And and what did they find? How, How do we tease out what the difference in gut flora is from, whether it is from Um, some sort of environmental trigger or whether it is from the hospital environment that you're talking about? Well, this is the story of this really exemplifies the the history of autism research, in my opinion. Certainly this sort of um, postmodern autism research, the the, the explosion of work that's going on at the moment, because it was a mother, uh, Ellen Balti, who published one of the earliest papers suggesting that gut flora in... um, children with autism may be abnormal. And she put forward the idea that clostridia, these um, 
bacteria, the anaerobic bacteria that live in the gut, uh, usually in relatively small numbers, may somehow be involved because they are known to produce neurotoxins, Clostridium tetani, the organism that causes tetanus, is a classic example. And it was an extremely interesting insight. And it led to um, a study of antibiotics uh, that are not absorbed from the gut. They're given orally, not absorbed from the gut, and they're, they're, they're potent, the uh, antimicrobial against the clostridia. And they led to benefit, demonstrable benefit, in uh, a trial conducted. I think the first author was Sandler, Dr. Sandler from Chicago. And they led to developmental and behavioral improvement in the children. And that's extremely interesting in and of itself because it demonstrated that there was a reversible element to the disease, but there was also very good evidence for a gut-brain interaction Mm -hmm. in these children. Now, what emerged from that study is that when you stop the antibiotic, the symptoms of autism came back. And that tends to suggest that the primary problem is the gut environment itself, the immune system of the gut, which is allowing these bacteria to thrive and potentially produce their neurotoxins. Now, there are other explanations for this, but that is a very, very plausible and interesting one. And then uh, a group from UCLA working with them uh, looked at um, Dr. Feingold, looked to see if there were abnormal clostridial species in the gut of children with autism, which indeed he found. And then this was supported later by um, a study from Reading in the UK, the University of Reading, which demonstrated once again that there were abnormal clostridial uh, species in the gut of children with autism compared with neurotypical controls. And then finally, the last part of that story, which is one that really has yet to run its full course, is um, Derek McFabe's work from um, Canada, where he demonstrated that one of the products of gut bacteria and clostridia in particular, a product called propionic acid, when put into the brains of uh, rodents, could produce many of the behavioral effects of autism. So is it possible that at least in some children with autism, there is abnormal gut bacterial overgrowth, dysbiosis, if you like, that is favoring the um, production of bacteria which can produce neurotoxins that are somehow getting across the gut and impacting the brain and altering behavior and development. It's a very interesting idea, not least of which is because it supports the idea that there's a the data support the idea is a reversible element to the problem, but it gives us a whole new insight into this gut-brain axis. Exactly. So when children are exhibiting behaviors such as in a school environment, um, it can't just be written off that acting out behaviors are behaviors. There's a, a gut-brain connection. So can you tell us about uh, cytokine and uh, cytokines and chemokines and the impact on neurotransmission and consequently on cognition, mood, sleep, and behavior uh, when these bugs are proliferating or when gastrointestinal pathology is treated appropriately? So, well, I, I'll try. I'll try. Cytokines are those chemicals that are produced by immune cells and um, 
they and other cells, and they, they provide signals um, to tissues and cells. They can be beneficial or they can be injurious. They can increase inflammation or they can decrease inflammation. They can activate immune cells or they can dampen them down. And they are recognized. They've been described as the molecules of emotion. And we all know that when we get sick, when we have flu, we become listless. We don't feel like doing anything. We take to our beds. Our sleep pattern changes. And this is called sickness behavior. And in evolutionary terms, the benefit of this behavior is potentially that it modifies what we do and it causes us to rest and it allows us to heal. That may well be part of it. But we are all aware of the profound effects that sickness has on our emotions and um, cytokines have been linked to depression, for example. And people who are chronically exposed to inflammation can at the same time become depressed. So there is a very well-established link between cytokines and behavior. And uh, there is also clear evidence of the abnormal cytokine activity in some children with autism. The ones that we've studied, for example, are those with, particularly with bowel disease, where we have shown that in both the blood and the bowel of these children, the cytokine profiles are abnormal. How are they abnormal? Well, there is an excess production of inflammatory cytokines, the kinds that make you feel ill and depressed when you have influenza, and a deficiency of the beneficial or what are called the regulatory cytokines that switch off inflammation. And one of those is interleukin-10, a very important, important cytokine, which um, is present at very low levels in the intestine of children with autism and bowel disease. And we think that is a key factor in why they have bowel disease and indeed uh, a key component of their autism in, per se. This is going to be a long question. Um, we've been talking about different kinds of abnormalities in the immune system with particular regard to the gut in children with autism, but when you use the term autistic enterocolitis, what are you really talking about? What are some of the studies that have established that children with autism have this evidence of inflammation and immunopathology throughout the GI tract, for example, gastrointestinal disease like reflux, esophagitis, gastritis, duodenal inflammation, colitis, we often hear about lymphoid nodular hyperplasia, and gut epithelial dysfunction. Right. Well, this started back in, in 1996, 97, when we first started finding inflammatory bowel disease of this type in children with autism. And it looked, for all the world, like a, a mild to moderate type of Crohn's disease, R really quite subtle in many children, but evident down the microscope. And we first called it ileocolonic lymphoid nodular hyperplasia, nonspecific colitis, and pervasive developmental disorder, and that was a bit of a mouthful. So we decided to try and find a, a name which encapsulated the findings but was much briefer, and autistic enterocolitis was one. Now, that may change in time as we come to know more about this, but it was a, a name that at the time suited our purpose much better. Um, what it really describes is the constellation of 
lymphoid nodule hyperplasia, which is swelling of the lymph glands in the intestine, particularly in the terminal ileum and the colon. And this is rather like swelling of the lymph glands in the neck when you have a sore throat. It tends to suggest an infectious process or, or a, uh, an allergic type process. And that occurring in association with inflammation of a particular type in the ileum and colon. Then um, Carolee Horvath from the University of Maryland came along and had been performing upper gastrointestinal endoscopy and biopsy, so looking at the esophagus, the stomach, and the duodenum in autistic children. And he found inflammation there, really in a very high proportion of children. He also found deficiencies in the enzymes, the digestive enzymes that are normally produced by the small bowel. So this suggested that the problem was not confined to the lower bowel, but it may well be affecting the upper bowel as well, and that was our own experience as we went on to look further. Dr. Horvath's paper was published in Pediatrics, and at the same time, a letter was published in The Lancet from um, a group in Brazil and uh, Venezuela showing the same pathology in their children with other developmental disorders such as ADD, ADHD. We went on to publish some, I think, 18 or 19 papers which sought to characterize this inflammatory bowel disease to say, is it real? Is it the same as something we've seen before like Crohn's or allergy or is it something quite distinct? Then uh, Arthur Krigsman in New York took up the challenge and has now had more experience than anyone else in the world, having scoped several thousand children, and found a very similar proportion with inflammatory bowel disease to our own. Interestingly, many of his biopsies were reviewed in Mount Sinai Hospital Pathology Department, where, which is where Crohn's disease was originally described uh, in the last century. Then Federico Balzola, Dr. Balzola from Turin in Italy, uh, started scoping children and with autism and also performing the pill count, that is the little capsule that you swallow and it takes two to three frames a second as it goes through the small bowel and provides you with images of, of what's going on there. And he was the first to do that in autism and demonstrated that the disease affected not only the top end and the bottom end, but the small intestine in between as well. And then uh, other groups have looked at this further, and I think the other published data come from Lenny Gonzalez in Venezuela, Caracas, who demonstrated likewise that these children have an inflammatory bowel disease. So many, uh, many pieces of evidence coming together, and uh, we will be back shortly with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. We thank our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. 
Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten-Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virostop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. And Dr. Wakefield, you've mentioned... Many things you've mentioned, um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, studies showing decreased digestive enzymes, decreased interleukin-10, and how do we tease out what caused all of these things to happen, uh, whether if we're talking about environmental insults, including components of vaccines, how do we know what came from viruses or what came from toxins? It's a tough question. Well, at least it appears to be a tough question at first. But if you go back to basics, then at least you have a starting point. So if you go back to the parental history, then you have a very sound starting point from which to begin your investigations or at least design the studies to look at possible causes. The story that we heard in the UK from many parents is that the child regressed after a vaccine, the MMR vaccine in particular, or Uh, other infectious insults. And I hear many, many similar stories in the United States. Um, The question that arose subsequently from, again, um, exemplary work from Sally Bernard and colleagues was the possibility that thimerosal as a preservative in the vaccines may be involved. And then others since then, including Dr. David Ayub, uh, have suggested that not only the thimerosal but other metals um, this time, aluminum acting as an adjuvant or uh, something put there to stimulate or promote the immune response may equally be having a detrimental effect that is enhancing the risk of an adverse reaction. And what people have come to over the years as we've stood, understood more and more about 
what is in these vaccines and their potential for interaction is that we may be looking at something really rather complex. That is, um, a child may receive a number of vaccines which contain uh, poisons to the immune system like thimerosal or aluminum, and then they receive a live viral vaccine at a point at which their immune system is compromised. They may also be vaccinated when they're not well, so their immune system is further compromised. They may also be on antibiotics, in which case their immune system is further compromised. They may be given five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten vaccines on the same day. And that, that, that compilation of events is simply too much for a system to sustain, and there is a meltdown, if you like. Now, is that biologically plausible? Yes. I think we've seen some recent evidence from the Department of Defense and the CDC which accept that in Gulf War syndrome, uh, soldiers exposed to multiple environmental toxins in a very short space of time, including vaccines, are at risk of developing long-term neuroimmune diseases. So is it plausible? Yes. How will we go about determining whether these things are the cause? Well, I think the only way we can do it is, is, is in a primate model on the one hand, um, where uh, we take the system that is used for preclinical vaccine safety testing and we ask, well, what is the cumulative effect of these things in infants? This is something that has never been done. In other words, what happens in the real world? So in the primate tests, they are given the single shot. They're not given what children actually get in the real world. Mm. And that study, you would imagine, you have every right to believe, should have been done as a parent, but it hasn't been done. And that is a study that is uh, absolutely crucial. Um, the other thing that needs to be done is a comparison of vaccinated and unvaccinated children. Now, the CDC protests that this is not possible. Um, I don't believe that. And they may think so, they do protest too much. And I'm concerned that their reasons for protesting is they simply don't want that study to be done. And that begs the question why. But there are many, many children in the U.S. Uh, who, for religious or philosophical reasons, have not been vaccinated. And I think that population is large enough that that study could and should be done as soon as possible. And only by doing those kinds of studies are we going to be able to dissect out precisely what is going on. Mm -hmm. You'd actually be able to go in, or someone would actually be able to go in and objectively, through lab testing, objective lab testing, measure things like interleukin-10 and cytokines and, and uh, gut flora, etc. I think there are a whole host of, of, of things that could be done if the study was designed properly that could answer a lot of these questions. The biological questions are perhaps answered more easily in the primate system because you can follow these animals from birth right the way through to maturity. Um, the problem with, um, with the large epidemiological studies is you're dealing with children who, um, the autistic children, who've already established the disease. So it's difficult to tell what happened to them before. But what you're, the question you're trying to answer there is, are these chronic diseases such as autism more common in the vaccinated and the unvaccinated population when other uh, potential confounders have been taken into consideration? 
I understand also, Dr. Wakefield, that you have a book coming out next year titled The Lesser Truth. Would you please tell us about this? Yes. Um, the Lesser Truth is a quote from Adolf Hitler. Um, the Lesser Truth, the Greater Truth excludes the Lesser. And um, the name that would derive from that. And it really encapsulates, I believe, much of the utilitarian pragmatism that is present in the public health perception of the world, that there is an acceptable level of damage to children, albeit that we have no idea what that acceptable level is because the systems for monitoring it are totally inadequate, um, and that the individual um, can be sacrificed for the greater good. Now, if that is the case, if that is your philosophy, I mean, I was raised in, 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 to practice medicine in a way that put the patient's interests before those of anything else, before any other. The patient came first. Clearly, that is not consistent with the perception of um, public health, which looks at the greater good. So if you are going to take that position, then you have an absolute moral obligation to make sure that the vaccines that you're giving are as safe as they possibly can be and that the systems for identifying problems that might arise from those vaccines are, again, as good as they can be. I'm afraid that is, is not the case. And what has happened to me over the last 10 to 15 years has been an extremely interesting experience, and it has come about as a consequence of challenging, in large part, uh, policy, profit, and faith. And it's really a, um, reflects the modus operandi of a system that is challenged and the way that that system strikes back. It's a standard modus operandi. There's nothing new about it. It's not a conspiracy. It's just a ruthless pragmatism that seeks to discourage dissent and um, it's just a fact of life. But the, it, accumulated, it, accumulated, it culminated in, in the um, General Medical Council hearing in the UK where my colleagues and I were accused of malpractice or um, professional misconduct in large part for, um, for investigating these children who turned out to have inflammatory bowel disease, uh, which is somewhat ironic since now this practice, the practice that we undertook, such as colonoscopy, for example, is being performed uh, widely around the world. Nonetheless, it did two things. It gave me an opportunity to speak relatively uninterrupted and tell the story as it actually happened. And the other was to, it gave me access to a huge number of documents which revealed precisely what happened behind the scenes in order to dismantle the research program at the Royal Free, and I think these are documents that many hoped would never see the light of day. Well, um, I'm afraid they're going to be disappointed. Uh, so it is a story about my experience and my experience of other people's experience and the tragedy that has befallen many families, and it's an effort to tell that story um, in a way that um, objectively conveys the truth of the matter and um, hopefully, in the end, some ways of putting it right. 
We're going to eagerly await your book, Dr. Wakefield. And again, to our listeners, that is called The Lesser Truth. Um, golly, Dr. Wakefield, that's just a, a chilling title, that quote from Adolf Hitler. It, it reminds me of, who was it, Lenin or Stalin, that said the end justifies the means, the end justifies the means, and yes. kind of contradicts that all human life is valuable. Yes, it's clearly the perspective of the vaccinologists, and I'm not in any way anti-vaccine, but I am for safe vaccination, is that they know. They know that vaccines are safe and they know that they don't cause problems. Well, don't know. Great deal to learn. They don't know and they need to be open to look and uh, put the patient first, as you said. That's what medicine is supposed to be about. And we will be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. JackLalane.com presents Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLane and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLane, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. And Dr. Wakefield, what are you seeing at Thoughtful House insofar as the correlation between biomedical treatment and educational testing? I know you provide a comprehensive program. And do the children do better with their educational therapy when they also have a biomedical and diet regimen in place? I think the answer is clearly yes, they do. Having said that, um, our experience comes from um, the interpretation of uh, CARDS at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, who are our partner in, in Thoughtful House here and who provide some of the best ABA that there is and have got a, a very data-driven. So they've been concerned over the years with determining whether it is ABA alone or whether it's ABA in, 
in conjunction with biomedical intervention that gets the best for the child and their perception from the viewpoint of um, behavior therapists is that biomedical intervention makes a big difference. Our anecdotal experience amongst the 2,000 or so patients that we serve here is very much that the children who are physically well, medically well, have had their bowel disease and their immune problems and their uh, various nutritional deficiencies treated respond very much better to behavioral intervention. What we, the aim of Thoughtful House is to put that into a, um, a scientific context. In other words, to conduct clinical trials to determine whether that is in fact, whether that's in fact the case. And we've just completed our first joint trial in this way, looking at the effects of um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy on developmental and cognitive function. All right. Well, you know, I've got to say that 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 must be objective if you have behaviorists who are saying that they see benefits of biomedical therapy. I know probably a lot of uh, schools uh, kind of poo-poo biomedical therapy, but here you have people who are involved with educational behavioral therapy who are saying, yes, you know, we see a benefit of the biomedical. It's just logical that when a child feels better and is healthy, they're going to perform better cognitively and that's right. I mean, if a child is in pain and suffering, it doesn't matter how much money you're, you're spending on ABA or how good the therapist is. If they can't concentrate, they're not going to benefit. I mean, there's no magic to this. It's very straightforward and logical. Um, but if you can take that child out of pain and make them feel better, well, then they can sit and, and learn and do very much better. Well, the children are really lucky that there are forward-thinking people of uh, integrity, uh, such as yourself and Dr. Doreen Grand Pichet, uh, who are working on these things every day for them. Um, well, very kind of you to say so. Let's talk a bit about um, how we remediate all these things. How do we establish a therapeutic diet? Um, I've heard that for some children, removing cow's milk alleviates constipation. Is that because it uh, remediates the, uh, the the bowel dis- disease or um, let's take the, 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 the smaller question first, which is cow's milk and constipation. This is um, something that's been recognized broadly in, in pediatric gastroenterology is that sometimes cow's milk hypersensitivity, cow's milk allergy is associated with constipation and removing the cow's milk can benefit those children. And this goes not just for children with autism, but more broadly um, to, to the pediatric population in general. So uh, how is it working? We don't know. But there's no doubt that inflammation is accompanied by um, neurological problems in the gut in many cases. So the gut is either working too quickly or not working uh, fast enough so that on the one hand you get diarrhea, on the other hand you might get constipation. And in the pediatric population with autism that we see, there's often a fluctuation between these two. Um, more broadly, the way in which we will define optimum treatment regimens comes from two perspectives. The first is that every child with autism is an individual, and each will need a tailor-made program for them that fits their clinical profile. And that can only be determined by careful attention to the history 
and the examination and the individual child's biochemistry uh, and other uh, tests. The one can more broadly, however, say that you can produce protocols for investigation, be that diet or digestive enzymes or any other modality that can be examined in the context of clinical trials. And the final formula of any um, treatment regimen must, in the end, be determined by the, um, the performance of that intervention in a clinical trial because what we're looking for is evidence-based medicine to the extent that we can find it that will benefit this population of children that's really based upon a scientific understanding of what's gone wrong with them in the first place. So when we remove things like gluten and uh, casein and certain carbohydrates from children's diets, uh, will we be able to figure out if it's how we can see benefits, but... Uh, with the with the naked eye, but will we be able to determine whether it's because it was causing um, inflammation or whether and releasing cytokines, or whether uh, because of their uh, um, hyperpermeability, certain uh, proteins and peptides were getting through to their brain? Will be be able to determine these things? I think so. I think in, in carefully designed studies, we will at least be able to. Um, reduce the number of hypotheses for why this is happening um, to the few that actually stand up to the rigorous science. In other words, can we measure molecules in the blood or the urine of children that have passed through the gut that perhaps shouldn't have done? And do those molecules come from gluten and casein? And what is their biological activity? And are they having an impact on the brain? Are they binding to the brain? So all of these questions are amenable to investigation and will yield answers. What we're seeing at the moment is an explosion of knowledge in autism based upon, largely upon the parents driving the medical agenda, saying, look, I know my child's sick. This is a biomedical disorder. Get with the program and do the science to demonstrate exactly what's wrong with them. And it's been a fascinating experience where we, as researchers, are very much persuaded by the intuition of parents um, as to what may be going wrong. I remember, for example, one of the first parents who came to me said, I think that my child has a vitamin B12 abnormality and that there's malabsorption or failure to utilize vitamin B12 and this is leading to neurological problems. Well, that was 1995. Now, you know that since then, there's been an explosion in the knowledge of the role of vitamin B12 in, in this disorder. And uh, it's used clinically to supplement children, but also an investigation of its role in, in um, methylation pathways and uh, various deficiencies in B12 metabolism that lead ultimately to depletion of things like glutathione. So this insight came initially from parents, and that is a fascinating thing. Well, again, uh, the children are just really fortunate that, you know, uh, people of integrity like you and Dr. Bernard Rimland and uh, Dr. Arthur Krigsman really respect uh, respect the parents and, and listen to the parents and learn from the parents. I think in the end, the parents um, have to trust their instincts. Instincts have served parents well for many millions of years or 
several million years at least, and um, they're there for a reason. And um, doctors likewise have to trust the instincts of parents if we're going to unravel this this mystery and this terrible affliction. And um, it's served me well, I think it's served Thoughtful House well, and I hope that in the end medical students tomorrow um, will relearn that lesson that many of us, many of us, many of my colleagues appear at least to have forgotten, that the history and the clinical observation of the patient are paramount in understanding disorders like this. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Wakefield. Um, I'm hoping we have uh, maybe a few seconds to just talk. You mentioned glutathione, and what is the role of that in the gut? Glutathione is a major protectant in the body against, in particular, oxidative stress. So just the normal process of cellular metabolism produces reactive oxygen metabolites that need to be mopped up and got rid of. Otherwise, they can cause damage, and glutathione... Uh, helps with that is the principal help with that and there are depleted levels in autism and the hope is that by restoring those in some way cells may be overcome all right well dr wakefield i just um we cannot thank you enough for your tenacity your patience integrity and dignity on behalf of the children very kind and it's a pleasure to be on the program to our listeners, Dr. Wakefield will be speaking at the Autism One Conference on May 23rd and also participating in the launch of the Elizabeth Burt Center for Autism Law and Advocacy at Autism One. And he will be contributing to the Autism File Magazine, April 2009 edition. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and thank you to our listeners on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.